0: Hi, this is Amanda and this is Lindsay. We're true creeps where the stories are true and the creeps are real We'll cover stories from grotesque gore to the possibly plausible paranormal to horrifying history to tense and terrible true crime And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised Hello, everyone. Today, we are going to be doing our second episode of True Crime Digest. Yeah, love these. This is like one of my favorite things that we started doing, I think. Right. It's kind of fun to just keep up with some of the current cases, especially when there's not too much to talk about, but there is some important stuff. Yeah, I like the idea of a monthly aggregate of the true crime happenings. We've lumped it all together and wrapped it in a beautifully wrapped True Creeps present for you, especially a beautifully wrapped present after our Creeps episode. (laughs) (laughs) And we hope you enjoyed that because it was a lot of fun to make. Yeah, we really enjoyed it, especially, I think, the intro. I think that was one of my favorite parts. Silly. Silly. I can't believe we got through it in one take. Yeah, that's very surprising for us. Sometimes there's (laughs) a lot of editing, guys. Uh, Sometimes there is. That's my accomplishment of the year right there. 10 out of 10. A single take. Well, before we start today's episode, we just wanted to thank everyone for the reviews lately. And remember, if you do leave us a review, screenshot it, email us that along with your address, and we'd be happy to send you a sticker. We appreciate all the support you guys give us. We also recently started a Patreon. We've got four different tiers starting at $1. And if you're one of our Patreons, you get access to the Bat Bonfire, which is our Patreon only Facebook group, plus some fun perks if you're in one of the higher tiers. If you're interested in fiscally supporting the show, you can visit our website, truecreeps.com and click the Patreon link. With that, we are going to dive right in. So the first update is the Kendrick Johnson case, as many of you probably have seen in the news, because it's been around. I feel like every few months you see something about it, but nothing's really changed until recently. So the case is a high schooler was found in the high school gymnasium wrapped in a gym mat. And that happened back in 2013. So it's been a long time. It's just unfortunately been sitting without a lot of updates for a while now. So earlier this month, March of 2021, the Lowndes County Sheriff announced that he would be reopening the case and said, I'm treating this like a brand new case. There's still a lot of questions people want answered and there's been some new developments. I also think it's great approaching it like this is a brand new case. I'm coming in with fresh eyes. I'm not going to piggyback off of what other people did. We're going to investigate this case correctly because it wasn't. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, there's been a lot of interviews lately. So I pulled a couple quotes from various ones from him and a couple other people that are playing their roles in the case. But just to give you kind of a recap, so you know what we're talking about, if you didn't hear about the case, in 2013, when Kendrick's body was found, he was found rolled up in a gym mat. And the ME said that his death was positional asphyxia, which is basically when the position you're in prohibits you from breathing and you suffocate. Right. Which sounds... Terrible, horrible, especially for a kid. Yeah, yeah. And what I found really interesting is there's some discrepancies between some of the reports. So where he exactly was, like where his positioning was within the mat, there's some talks of that he was upside down in the mat. And then from what I read, paramedics said that when they arrived, his torso, head and arms were slightly exposed. So that kind of contradicts some of the other reports. So, of course, there's not like the moment they walked in photos or anything. But I know that that was a big talk before. So the case at one point was closed because there was insufficient evidence that there was any foul play, even though there was some like unclear facts about how he ended up there. Again, it's been a while. It's been since 2013. His body, unfortunately, has been exhumed twice since then just to do different autopsies. The first time he was exhumed, the new autopsy showed that he actually died from unexplained apparent non-accidental blunt force trauma, which again contradicts the original one, right? You would think that they would have seen that. It doesn't contradict that in a small way. You would think that any autopsy would notice if there was damage to the skull. You would hope. It's insane that it's taken them three autopsies down now to find that. I mean, The second one they found it, the third one confirmed it as well. I think it was done a little bit after that. What I think is horrific is that the third autopsy was at the request of his family. Mm-hmm. That breaks my heart. It does. And his family is amazing at all of the things that they've been pushing for. And I, I've even seen pictures of them with like signs on the side of the street asking for justice to be found for him. I'm not sure what happened to him. I'm hoping that they get it figured out. But. What happened recently is there's been a recording that was given to the family. Actually, I shouldn't say given. They purchased a recording of a potential suspect. And the fact that they even had to do that is just insane to me. Yeah. The person who approached them asked for $1,000. And it was only a 25 second recording. And they alleged that it was actually one of their family members that they had recorded Mm -hmm. saying this. Yeah. And this even comes after last year in 2020, there was an online petition to reopen the case. And it got a lot of movement. Even people like Kim Kardashian shared it online. So it's been talked about since 2013. And it's incredible that now there's a recording that possibly can lead to at least answers because I I don't want to say anything wrong. We don't know. We don't know what happened to him. It very well could have been an accident, but it sounds like someone was there. You know, someone knew what happened, but the transcript, which is available online, you can't actually hear it yet, but the transcript is as follows. They're going to catch me anyways. Should have never done that. I was young and stupid, man. Kendrick didn't deserve that. They're going to catch me. What do you think when you read it? I mean, when you read it, it certainly sounds like something happened. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know whether it was accidental or purposeful, but it certainly sounds like this person was involved. Right. Agreed. And the idea like the person who did this, I'm not defending them in any way, but the fact that like they confessed to a family member, a family member recorded that, then sold that to the victim's family member for a thousand dollars. What an absolute garbage human to be the person who's like family who's grieving your child. Will you pay me a $1,000? Yeah. Legitimately, what a just scum of the earth kind of person. It's It's very just sad all around. Just this whole thing, especially from 2013, this family has been waiting for answers. Yeah, it's a long time. And now someone comes up. From what I understand, they're trying to basically confirm the authenticity of the recording. And a spokesperson for the family, as well as the family, says on their end, they believe that it's legitimate. Now it's in law enforcement's hands. They're going to confirm the identity, make sure everything's legitimate before they move forward. There was speculation, and I believe it was actually confirmed that the person that they believe is in that recording was already questioned about the case before. So we're not going to go too much more in detail on this one because we are planning to do a full episode on this, but we wanted to bring this up because this is big true crime news. Yeah. So as this progresses, we'll make sure to update you guys. Yeah. So our next case is Laurie Vallow Daybell and Chad Daybell, and we'll explain why the little tongue-in-cheek in making sure we add Daybell at the end of her name <laughs> you can't see the eye rolls. So many eye rolls and just heavy size and a lot of judgment. So there's a few different things we're going to talk about with Vallo. We're going to talk about the filings from the end of February through March so far. We're going to talk about the hearing that was in March as well as the Dateline episode Mommy Doomsday mm-hmm. that aired on March 26th, which was yesterday as we're recording this. Yes. Okay, so we're going to start with filings. There have been 22 filings since our last update. Is that all? Amir, Amir 22. I've gone through them, so you don't have to. And also, I'm not going to tell you about each one individually. That's boring. So I've lumped them into categories. The first kind of broad category was filings that were administrative in nature, ones that had to do with scheduling for future hearing, filings regarding expert witnesses. And then there was the order from February's hearing then the prosecution's response to provide the required discovery that was ordered. And then there was also a subpoena that it was missing its first page. But on the second page, it says that it was served to Craig Taylor. And that's Heather Daybell's attorney. So I'm thinking it was a subpoena to her but not 100% sure. Our second broad topic of filings, surveys. I hadn't previously heard about this, so I thought this was very interesting. So both Chad and Lori had folks who conducted informal surveys in various close jurisdictions to gauge whether there would be an impartial jury. Right. And this is like rather than having like a survey firm like Ironsights, who we've talked about before, who is one of their expert witnesses, this is somebody else. And so Chad listed the surveys as evidence he planned to include during the motion to change venue. But he didn't say who conducted the study. And when I say Chad, I mean his attorney. Right, right. So there was a discovery request from last December where they asked for Chad to disclose who performed the surveys. And his response was they would only name themselves through protective pleadings. And so <laughs> it's a little odd, especially considering one that's a survey that's being presented as evidence. So the source is very important when you're thinking of the credibility of that survey and whether it would be even admitted as evidence. And we'll get to that in a moment. But so in response to the December 9th discovery pleadings prior on behalf of Chad responded to each discovery request with just the word none. (laughs) He is the most, Odd attorney, when you get to watch these Zoom meetings with him and he just always sits there so straight faced and like angry about life, he looks almost annoyed that he has to be there. His resting face is like just above a boil. He has like a resting, angry face yeah. because there's no equivalent of that for Matt. Yeah, his default face is angry. Yeah, he's got an RBF. But so, okay, there was a filing to compel Chad to say who conducted the surveys. I find this very interesting. They're like, we're not going to tell you it's a secret. And it's like, that's not how any of this works, my dude. But so on March 1st, Mark Means provided the name of the party who conducted the surveys on behalf of Laurie. Her name was Andrea Schatt. And then John Pryor provided the name who conducted the Chad surveys. And that was Heather Daybell and Colombo Investigations run by Joe Adriani. I love the name. The name of it? Like, amazing. And if you don't know, because it is a little bit older, there was a show about a detective who was kind of bumbling but brilliant, right? I think that's a good way to describe it. And that was Columbo. When I googled Columbo investigations because I needed to know everything, the only thing that came up was Valo Daybell stuff. So, disappointing. I couldn't find more out about him. But okay, so now the prosecution has who conducted the surveys. So Rob Wood files and motions in Limony, Two of them: one for Andrea Shot, the other for Joey Adriani and Heather Daybell. And what they aim to do is to exclude both the testimony regarding the surveys and the surveys themselves from evidence because, (laughs) and here's where it gets a little interesting. So Wood argues that the surveys were informal and that there has not been any documentation provided for the survey takers qualifications to prove that they're able to provide actual unbiased results, which is the equivalent of being like, hey, do you think my friend's guilty? Yeah, cool you can't do this it's silly like to think that you could have just like your friends go around and ask people if they like you it's an it's the most informal of polls check yes or no yeah check like and you just slide a note under someone's front door and then you put yes or no and then they check yes or no yep. and then they tally it in their little book so all of the parties who were are going to be talking about the surveys were going to be called as lay witnesses, not expert witnesses. And when someone is being called as expert witnesses, there's criteria to make them an expert, right? Like Amanda can't like walk in off the street and say, I am a chocolate scientist and then talk about what percentage of rat feet can be in chocolate, right? Like she's not a chocolate scientist, unless are you a chocolate scientist? I mean, I'm studying hard, but you're not a chocolate scientist yet. Close enough. We'll reconvene and we'll figure it out later. But so you have to meet certain criteria to be an expert witness. And none of these people do. No. <laughs> and these surveys wouldn't meet the standards that should be admitted as evidence. Right. Right. And there's that same kind of logic. would also cites relevant case law that states that those conducting surveys and polls must be experts and the interviewers should be trained. These people are not trained as far as I'm aware. And that surveys and polls with substantial deficiencies, like not being unbiased, in their design or execution may be excluded by the court. So the judge can say like, no, this is no. A waste of time. <laughs> A waste of everyone's time. And I think this is the inexperience in this type of trial is showing with this kind of behavior. Yeah, absolutely. This is the kind of thing where you go, oh, you don't seem like you know what you're doing. And it's kind of fair, though, again, based off of what they've probably dealt with in the past in that area. This is above most people's heads, you know, in that that realm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, this unlike anything they've ever experienced. But still, I would be highly surprised if the court let this in. And so Means argued that the state is trying to hold lay witnesses to the standard of expert witnesses. And he says that whether this evidence should be admitted is a trial issue, which we don't know whether they're going to be admitted yet. I am going to play fortune teller and think that they're not going to be admitted. That's fair. And by the they, I mean either the testimony or the surveys. Okay, so we've got three more kind of broad filing topics. The next is jailer statements. So in an article on eOnline, it says, despite the criminal allegations against Laurie, Keith Morrison says he's heard from authorities that she remains, quote, convinced she's on the right path. He shares the stories that we have heard from her jailers are that she's reading Chad's books. She's writing him letters. She's dancing in her cell. She seems to be caught up in the belief that she's still going to be swept out of all of this and taken up to heaven sometime in the next little while. it's amazing that she's still all in, you know, like the world didn't end. She's like, nope, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Just going to wait here by my portal. So here's what Mark Means did. He filed a discovery motion asking for all information about conversations between Lori and jailers and authorities from Madison Sheriff's Department, Madison County Detention Center, Rexburg Police, Madison County Prosecutor's Office, he was like, any conversations we want to know about him because he's trying to get at the root of like, what did these jailers tell Keith Morrison? Right. Uh-huh. And Rob Wood responded, that's outside the scope. And that would also require him to go conduct interviews and find out. And he's not going to investigate and collect evidence that the defense needs to go collect. And we talked about this little last time about how it's not like I have mine and you have yours. Right. If if the evidence exists, you have to share it with one another. Right. And just thinking about what he's asking too, just conversations between Lori and any of, you know, the people. There's gonna be daily conversations. Yeah. You know, like she and her personality is gonna come out within those conversations. Yeah. There's no way. They have to take care of how many other jailers? Yeah, yeah. That's just a little much, I think. No, it's silly. It's absolutely silly. But it was just like I don't know why you thought that he would, would would have that. You know what I mean? I think it's also we're talking about a high profile case. Which means that people like to be listened to, whether that's jailers or, you know, people who work at a front desk or anybody who works in the prison machine or the jailer machine, right? Like, it doesn't necessarily mean that somebody's recorded these and, like, slipped them to Rob Wood. And it's a little bit paranoid to think that that's actually happening. Right. That's just not how. And also, like, we've said it over and over. We'll always say it over and over. This isn't a case like they've seen before. So everyone's interested. Yeah. So people are talking, talking, talking. Well, and it's a small town, too. Uh Uh-huh. So Rexburg, again, I've been there. Everyone seems to know someone, or if they don't know that person, their friend or their family member knows them. At least that was my experience when I talked to people there. Yeah. They're like, oh, my friend's cousin did this, or my friend's cousin was one of the people that work at the jail. And it's like, yeah, of course. Yeah. Everyone knows everyone. (laughs) I don't know if it was friend's cousin, but it was some sort of two layers down. Close relation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So- our next category of filings, it's a brief one. It's Lindsay's favorite. Amanda, please tell us about it. It seems ridiculous. Like, just ridiculous. So, the naming of Lori. Now they're asking the court to order all captions of the case to reflect Lori, Noreen, Ryan, Vallo, Daybell, or Mrs. Lori Daybell. And now, Lindsay, as a lawyer scientist. Lawyer scientist. Yes. I can claim only one of those titles. <laughs> I just figured we have to put scientists at the end of everything. Yeah. Yeah. I got you. So can you think of a reason that she needs to tie Chad's name to herself like this? I mean, like generally you want the record to reflect your legal name, but is it her legal? I believe it is. Changing your name takes a while. It, it could depend on the jurisdiction. I just went to familylegalfilings.com and looked up Idaho married name change. And it looks like they have to print off some forms and then take the completed forms to the social security admin office. So yeah, they have to start there, then do DMV, then change it everywhere else. So they're on step three now. I don't see why they're pushing for it so much. The only people that in my head would make sense for them to push for that would be Charles Vallow's family. Be like, mm-mm. Take our name off of that. We don't want anything to do with that. I think it's interesting that she kept Ryan and Vallow in her middle name. Well, yeah, she has to rack them all up. Okay, Amanda, are you ready for the good stuff? I'm ready for the good stuff. So this is our our last category of filings. We're both smiling a lot for this. (laughs) We're both smiling too much for this. Okay. So Rob Wood is seeking to have an attorney who's barred in Missouri come to assist in the case. And you're probably like, why does he need another attorney? I certainly was like, why are you importing from a different state? Yeah, that was weird. If you don't know, you have to be barred in a certain state in order to practice law. Mm -hmm. You could take the bar. She could get her bar license in the state. Or she could be admitted pro-hack. And so what that is, is for this individual case, the judge can decide to allow her into the case. And there are various administrative concerns like who's going to pay for this? Did the proper counties approve of this? Right. There's also the fact that Rob Wood is the special prosecutor on this. And he said, I can do this. And now he's saying I need help. Understandably, though, there's more developments. (laughs) Understandably. Now, Amanda, you've read the headlines. Why does he want her? So they're going for a capital case. And if you don't know what a capital case is, murder. It's coming. We know it's coming. It's so close. It's coming. And you're probably thinking, that's a very weird tone to have in your voice. But I am literally over the moon at the possibility that these kids could get some justice. Yeah. And Tammy, too. Tammy and Charles and possibly even Joseph. Just Everyone, just some type of reckoning for these people who have been racking up bodies. And so Mark Means, Laurie's attorney, he argued that the current cases are not in Rachel Smith's expertise because she's a capital offense prosecutor, which is true, right? Like right now, those are not the charges that exist. So it doesn't make sense that she would be admitted quite yet, kind of. Yeah. Like they skipped a step almost. Yeah. Mark calls it putting the cart before the horse. Oh my gosh, Mark. And so he writes it a few times. You can tell he was like. He's like, this sounds great. Like in my brain, he like whipped out a quill and was like. And then he had like like a secretary type it up. I see it as him saying, Alexa, take notes for me. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. (laughs) So Means also argues that Wood waived any motion for additional counsel when he asserted that he and his office were capable of prosecuting the crimes. But at that time, the crimes were different. They were missing kids at that moment, right? I believe so. And so interesting. Let's move in to our March 22nd hearing. The whole point of this hearing was to determine whether Rachel Smith would be brought on per the pro-hack admission motion. So there were some conversations before the live stream that I couldn't find notes on because the whole world was not privy to them. But so the motion to admit Rachel Smith to the case for Laurie's case wasn't heard yet, which is interesting. So no arguments, no decision. So the hearing is only in relation to Chad's case. And we talked before how the cases were going to be merged. That means they're going to be tried at the same time. It doesn't mean the same case. So a guilty verdict for Laurie doesn't mean a guilty verdict for Chad or vice versa. It just means that they're going to bring everybody in all at once. And that it'll be one jury who makes all the decisions on everybody. Right. And the reason was a lot of their witnesses and everyone that's going to talk are going to be the same. And a lot of them live out of state. Yeah. And so it was going to be like the same case twice. And that's not really necessary. We talked about before. But Laurie was like, OK. And Chad was like, nah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so Judge Boyce said that you have to show that the attorney is a practicing attorney and has a law firm in the state that they're barred. And that just wasn't in the paperwork presented. But she was sitting right next to Rob Wood during the hearing. So Rob Wood was like, she can enter a statement on the record and we can just get this done right now. So she entered a statement, talked about how she does have law firms that she works out of. And so he was like, great. She is admitted for the case against Chad. But just Chad so far, which is interesting. And also Judge Boyce specifies that these motions are considered on a case by case basis. And that if she's going to be assisting in additional cases in the future, more motions would need to be brought in possible cases as well. This is Fremont County. She was brought in to assist on behalf of Madison County, which I thought was fascinating. And she's also being paid by Madison County, Mm -hmm. not Fremont. So our last section for VALO for tonight (laughs) is (laughs) a lot. It was a lot to talk about. I feel like what was a little bit. But it's interesting because it's not just the sexy parts of the trial that are fascinating. It's all the things that make it up because that's how you get to the trial. Because you see like what kind of evidence is there? Why is it there? How do we get the players that are there? I don't know. Yeah. I get excited about it. (laughs) Okay. So our last Valo Daybell or Daybell Daybell, Daybell Squared, if you will. Daybell Squared is what we are going to be referring to them now as. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So our last Daybell Squared topic is the Dateline episode, Mommy Doomsday which aired on March 26th. And we're we're both like, are you ready for this? And <laughs> the previews, I was really excited to see some people that I'm like, oh, I, I want to hear their take on things. But realistically, there wasn't a lot of new information. There might have been some new information for the people that have only followed along maybe on like datelines and all of the interviews in that sense. But if you're part of any of the discussion groups, which I, I think I'm a part of like seven of them, a lot of this has leaked already, but still some interesting things to note. So first thing was Tom Ware and Vivian Lewis, and they were interviewed. Originally, they were the mental health professionals that were assigned to help the court decide the custody for Tylee. So that was back when Lori was divorcing Joseph Ryan, which is Tylee's father. And they were there just to figure out who should have the custody, right? Vivian Lewis mentioned that Lori told her that she believed that Tylee was a reincarnation of her sister, her sister who had died. So, not Summer, but her other sister, Stacy. And Stacy, if you don't remember, is Melanie's mom. So, Melanie, her niece, not Melanie, her friend. <laughs> Lots of Melanies. Melanie with an I. Melanie with an I. Yep. And she's the one that moved to Rexburg when Lori. So, just to tie that together. That's an interesting, weird thing to say, especially to a mental health evaluator. Yeah. Do you think that Melanie with an eye was aware of this belief? Like, did she consider Tylee her cousin mom? I don't know. She did buy into a lot of Lori's things, though. So, I mean. Yeah, that's why I was saying I was like, I wonder if like she believed that, too. Possibly. Maybe. So for the custody case, Tylee had a guardian at Latham. The idea is, is that especially in cases where the parents are involved, the parents are each going to have counsel or they're going to be representing themselves, Mm -hmm. right? The guardian ad litem is the person who is on behalf of the kid. So it's kind of like the child advocate. It's like the person who's going to speak up for them because they can't. Tylee's guardian ad litem was Tom Ware. So both Vivian and Tom thought that Lori had manipulated her children into thinking that they were sexually abused and did not believe that Joseph Ryan had sexually abused them. Colby flat out says that he was sexually abused and that of all the things that his mother has done, lying and manipulating him into thinking that he was sexually abused was not one of them. Vivian and Tom were like very, very sure and were like wholeheartedly. They were like, we respect Colby's experience and what his memories are and what he believes. But that doesn't mean that it actually happened. Right. Not to say that he wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know one way or another, but that is a possibility. Yeah, it was I thought that was very interesting that they were so sure-footed when they said it. Yeah, and the way that Tom talks about Tylie too. And he's like it was so long ago, but he he really feels for her and it's it was really sad, you know. That was just his job to help her during one case long ago and that he still yeah. has feelings for one of his clients. One of the things that I thought was really interesting too was that I believe that she said it to Vivian. She was like, "I could just go to Mexico with my children. Like I could just leave." Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of different things that came up of various times that Lori said strange things to people. A lot of them have come up in other interviews and other things prior to this. So we won't touch on all of them. But she openly has said very weird, concerning things to many different people along their lifetimes. Another piece that stuck out to me was Annie Cushing, and she is Joseph Ryan's sister. So she talked about how they found out that Joe had died. And in my head, I never really thought about how they found out. And yeah, what had happened is one of their brothers actually called Annie to say that Joe died. And he found out because he received a letter from the city of Phoenix, basically saying we need to find a relative to claim the body, which is so sad. Yeah. And it had been around a month, I want to say, since the all of that had transpired. So then Annie called Lori thinking, I mean, I think she was going to be like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry to tell you, Tylee's dad's dead, right? But what she got was Lori's like, oh, I know. Yeah. And just thought that Annie wouldn't care. And I'm like, even if they weren't close, right? And Annie said that before. They weren't close. They didn't really talk. That's still your brother. You still would care if they passed away. We won't get too much into it, but they also talked about, really at the top of, I think, the Dateline episode, that Joseph didn't really have an easy life and that him and his siblings were split apart when they were very young and put into foster care. And so, one, the fact that they made it back to each other, mm-hmm. I find heartwarming. Yeah, And then another piece that they discussed is Lori told Annie that she went to the crime scene with Tylee and two police officers allowed her into the apartment. And what she got was a box of photographs. Mm -hmm. She also talked about how there was piles of files around his bedroom. In the crime scene photos, Annie took them and was like, okay, I need to see what she's talking about. And what she noticed is, yeah, the apartment actually was a mess. And that was total opposite of Joseph's personality to live in a like a messy space. Yeah, because he was a neat freak and a perfectionist. And that kind of reflected even when she discussed his temper in a way, like if something wasn't right. Yeah. So it's very weird that his apartment was a mess. But she also noted she did not see that particular box. So she's like, did Lori go before the police? How did she obtain this box? And why is it in these photographs? Which is a very weird thing to notice and, and not be able to see in these photos, right? Yeah, you would think that if she had retrieved this box, it would have existed in these photos. Yeah, the photos would have happened first. Annie also noted just a couple other things. There was an extra deadbolt on the door, which she believes her brother was living in fear. And she also noted that his driver's license photo He looked like a broken man, and it was taken just a couple months before he died. So you could tell he was going through something. We don't know what he was going through. We don't know if it was Lori. I mean, a lot of facts point to that, but we don't know what he was going through at that time. And it is really, really sad that he died alone in his apartment and wasn't found for some time. What I also find very sad, too, is that and Annie, she stopped talking to her brother after an incident that she had witnessed. But she is like, I didn't know that it was going to be forever. Mm -hmm. The idea that she's getting this glimpse into her brother's life before he died, and it's not the man she knew. Right that hurts my heart. Absolutely. And then Annie also noted that the first autopsy that was done on Joseph was only an external exam. And remember, he was ruled to have died from natural causes or possibly a heart attack, right? How do you know that from an external look? They're like, mm, looks heart attacky. am wondering that myself. I was like, you're saying organ damage, baby, but you're not looking at the organs. Annie mentioned that they probably based the autopsy on his prior medical history, and then it sounded like Dateline might have reached out to the medical examiner's office, and they did say it isn't uncommon to do it that way, and that's likely what happened. I would like to take this time to climb up onto my fat phobia soapbox. Okay. I find it appalling to think that people are going to look at bodies and go, looks like a person who would have a heart attack, and then just move the fuck on. Like, yeah, how many fat people have been murdered and someone went, they're fat. I'm shaking my hands. I'm shaking my head. Amanda, I'm going to look into this. Yes, we know there's inherent biases against fat people in the, the medical profession. Right. But is it in the death world too? Like, I'm sure Ugh. I've seen different things, various things about even burials for larger people. Yeah, I told Ben he could throw my body in a dumpster. He didn't love that. He didn't love that. Ugh. Why does he listen? Same with mine. I just don't. Please don't spend thousands of dollars to put me in some fancy box. No, no. So Annie is, again, you may have already been following her, but she's very active on Twitter. She used to be a big part of a lot of the discussion groups, but she did phase that out from at least a couple that I am in. So the day that the Dateline interview came out, she had tweeted at Phoenix Police. She says that their review of my brother's case was a joke. I was never questioned about Lori's claim about being led into Joe's apartment by two officers or how Joe's picks and files that reeked of death made it into Lori's garage. Those are good questions. Good questions, Annie. Yeah, and she's she's doing a great job following all of the things that are uncovered. And remember, she is Tylee's aunt. And watching her talk about Tylee's remains was so sad. I always think that, no, it's just going to be Larry that gets me. And I was just like watching Annie. I was like, oh, this poor woman. That's so sad. Well, and then one other fact that we knew a little bit of, his body had sat for a little while and decomposed in his apartment, right? And the way that they had found it was a neighbor's dog was scratching at the door. And then they did the wellness check. And then just the fact that his family didn't know for a time after that is just this poor guy died and no one knew for so long. It's so just, I don't know, it breaks my heart. No one should have that. Yeah, no one, no one. Mm And again we don't know what he's accused of but still no one deserves that. And also too his family doesn't deserve that. No. Like regardless of what he's done the people who love him deserve to find out that their loved one passed like Yeah. Exactly. Even somebody who you like maybe you're a stranger that's not how you want to picture somebody you love. No. No, not at all. And then they did touch a little bit on how he had a life insurance policy for 150,000. That's kind of been brought up in various ways that Tylee did get some sort of money after his death. And that might have been a motive possibly for Lori as well. Who could say? So to move on, another thing that we thought was pretty interesting is they talked a little bit about Charles's other relationships prior to Lori. So he had been married twice and both women appeared in the Dateline episode. One thing that I found was interesting is when he was married to Cheryl, they adopted one of Charles's nephews at that time. And we're not talking about JJ. We're talking about another nephew. Yeah. And there's a part of me that like, I love that we're just finding this out because he was raising this kid as his own. Mm -hmm. And that was one of his sons. And like, nobody was like, no, it's actually his nephew. Like, no, no, that's his son. Yeah. And that like, it screams to his character. That gives me all the feels about him. Charles seemed like he was a really good person, like a really, really good person. Yeah, absolutely. I also love Cheryl, by the way. I do too. Love her. Yeah. And she was spot on with everything, you know, like everything she was feeling. And that must hurt your soul to go, I knew something was up. But how do you how do you move on from that? You know, what do you do when you have that weird inkling about someone? Yeah, especially when it's like your ex's new wife. Mm-hmm. Like, people are a little bit suspect to hear your thoughts on them because, like, you're just jealous and you're like, no, she's unstable and I don't want her on my children. Like, those are different things. Right. And she was just so genuine because she was like, I was happy at first for him that he found someone else. And then she was a little odd. <laughs> Which, yeah, she's spot on about everything. So she talked about, and this this hurt my heart a little bit. She talked about how when her son found out his father had died via text message, by the way, remember, it was a text message from Lori and how he screamed and cried, and my heart like got crushed there. I was like, i I had it in my head, you know, re- receiving that sort of text, but just hearing the other side of that text where it was received, just what the hell was she thinking? That's so inconsiderate and horrible. and just if you remember, we we talked about the text message exchange and how it was just like, dad died. Still love you. Like, it was very just nonsense. Well, here's my thing, too. She believed that Charles had been possessed by Nick Schneider, a dark spirit or a demon named Nick Schneider. And if that's true and that she just thought that he was inhabited and that her husband was possessed, she would mourn him mm-hmm. because he was gone. And she didn't. No. That, that's what tells me, like, I mean, aside from the fact that that's bananas, the fact that she didn't mourn him when he actually died says something to me. And the fact that she was so cavalier yep. with his death to his children... And there's a way to do this that's not that. Honestly, even if she would have, te- and I'm not saying this would, would have been good either, but she should have reached out to Cheryl. Cheryl should have been the one to tell them. Yeah, that or anything but a text message, you know, literally anything else. She should have gotten on a plane, uh, talked to them face to face. Like there's, there's so many different ways. Even even a video call would have been more appropriate than what she did. Yeah. And it's just i I hurt for Cheryl, too, watching it unfold and just having to be there for your kids, but not being able to do anything about it, you know that hurts, yeah. and I would also imagine like. There's a certain part of her that's relieved that, like, her kids are okay, right? Like, which feels so natural and there's no judgment. And, like, I would imagine that they would be like this painful kind of relief where you're like happy your kids are okay, but then you feel bad because you're happy that your kids are okay. You know what I mean? Like, right. I don't know if that makes any sense, but no, it does. It does make sense. This person was around her kids. Yep. And everybody thought she was wonderful and great and she knew. Mhm. She read into it more. Yeah. Yeah. She was like, I see you. Mhm. Yeah. They need to hire her on. I need to hear more about Cheryl's thoughts all the time. Yeah, she knows things. Well, another thing too and it wasn't really shown too much in the dateline and we've seen it before, but I just want to point out too the videos of Charles before he died with the police the body cam footage. And there's multiple videos as well from different dates. And if you go back to the one where he got home from that plane ride and watch it, Mm -hmm. he's worried. And he even says like he cares. And you're just like, I can't believe what this poor man was going through. He's telling like he's unloading it. She thinks I'm Nick Schneider, blah, 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 blah. And the police officers are like, what? How do you react to that? Yeah. And then all of this goes down. It's the video that you're like, someone could have done something. He's saying, she's thinking this, she's doing this. And I understand you can't just go off of someone's word, but he tried. He was reaching out for help and no one helped him. Just like another man she broke. How many red flags do you need? Yeah, it hurts my heart to think of his last few months. Yeah. So another noteworthy topic is Wade English, which was one of their Kauai friends. So when Charles and Lori had moved to Kauai with the kids... He talked about how wonderful and patient that Charles was with J.J. He says he never had a quote unquote red face, especially when the kids were acting up or when J.J. was being a little more difficult and Charles never showed it. And again, that's just like another character building piece here of Charles. Yeah. Again, when we're talking about like justice for the kids, it's like justice for Charles too, because he sounds like such a wonderful person. Yeah. Another person that came forward in this interview was Taylor Larson, and that's Charles's attorney who was dealing with the divorce side of things when Charles and Lori were deciding to split and not split, then he died. So Charles had told him that Lori and Alex would kill him, but it would be Alex who did the deed. He basically said, like, if something happens to me, this is who did it. Ugh, that fucking sucks. He knew. And just like living with that too. You you know, people say that they're like, oh, you know, if someone's mad at me. If I die, it's them. But like, he really meant it here. Yeah. And imagine someone coming to you and being like, my significant other thinks I'm a zombie and I'm this other person. And this is why we're getting a divorce because now they're doing this, this and this and this. And you're like, were you watching a lot of TV this week? Well, I think the hard part is, is that Okay, we've talked about it before. I told you that was my thing for today. Men are more dangerous to women than vice versa. But that does not mean that men are not victims of domestic violence. And it hurts me that it was abusive behavior that she was engaging in. And it's harder to like act, right? Because he probably wasn't like, I'm afraid for her to come near me. Right? Right. But he was probably like, I'm afraid of what she might do to me. And those are two different things. And like, there's no place in the law for that. Right? Like, Aside from getting like a bodyguard, what do you do? Right. Like your client comes to you and says, I'm scared they might hurt me, but I'm not scared to be around them. Yeah. Like, I'm afraid they're going to put a hit out on me is way different than I'm afraid of them being in my actual presence. And I would imagine that his attorney was just like, what can I do? Yeah. And living with that, too, just like I was told this and then it happened. Mm -hmm. And it's just like waiting for everything to work out would be really hard. It's hard because there was kids in play. Just fucking awful. I think, though, the most interesting part of the dateline was Tammy's sister, Samantha. I was so happy to finally watch her speak because I've seen, yes, people discuss like her sister said this or even Chad's brought her up before. But just seeing her helped me, I guess, like put everything together a little bit more. I like having a face to what I've read about. Yeah. And she just seemed so genuine and sweet and loving. And she cared so much for her sister. And she's very passionate about finding out the truth. And I love her. Well, and the picture that Chad has painted of her is of some harpy who can't accept her sister's death. Yes. So she's looking for a boogeyman. And here she shows us this like calm, sweet, Your neighborly gal who's like, I don't understand. Mm -hmm. I don't understand because you two loved each other. I saw it with my own eyes. Yeah. It was clear to everyone around you. But you got married so soon after she died. Yeah. They thought that he was going to Kauai to grieve because like for whatever reason. Yeah. They didn't think that he was going there to get married. They thought he was grieving. Yeah. And by they, you mean Samantha and her husband, Jason. Yes. Samantha and her husband thought that he went to Kauai to grieve not to go get married. Exactly. And what we're referring to where she just said, oh, he kind of refers to her as a harpy, is that recording that Melanie Gibb had. And he references Tammy's sister and saying basically like she's creating something that's not there. And no, she's being a very good sister is what she's doing. Killing that sister game. Yeah, definitely. I'm pretty sure that was her big sister too. Like Tammy was her big sister, right? There's five kids. It looked like they had like sitcom wonderful sibling relationships. Yeah. She referred to a couple stories and you're just like, that's the cutest thing ever. Thinking of Tammy as like cute little girl with her make-believe library. (laughs) Yeah. She would uh, give her siblings fines if they gave books back late which I find very cute and fiscally responsible. Yeah, Tammy was awesome. And honestly, every single thing that I've heard about Tammy from anyone that's known her, or again, when I went to Rexburg and people are like, I didn't know her, but my neighbor knew her or, you know, so-and-so knew her. Mm -hmm. Not one person had anything bad to say about her. Not that I was asking for that, but they were just like, she was sweet. She was helpful. She always wanted to do this and this for someone. She loved animals. Just she seemed so unbelievably amazing. Yeah. Well and Chad blamed Samantha for Tammy being exhumed. Like he was saying he was like, It's her fault. She's pushing for this. She's pushing for this. But the way that she found out that Tammy had been exhumed was when Chad called her. Yep. And then she went to the cemetery and then she found out. Yeah. That she had been exhumed. They had run tests and given her an autopsy and then reburied her. It was very quick and nobody was told. Including Samantha. We knew that from Emma's story as well that the family didn't know beforehand. Exactly. If Chad hadn't called, it seems like it would have been a bigger secret for longer, right? Because it's so fast. Yeah. How did he know? Did he work at that cemetery? Oh, you're right. I think that's where he used to work when they lived there. That's probably how he found out. Somebody told him because they knew him. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, they probably didn't realize that he was off with his new wife. Exactly. Just to refresh, he was a Cemetery Sexton long ago. He wrote a book on it. I've read that book. It's very matter of fact. Oh, yeah. It's a little weird the way that he like describes each job and just how he remembers the type of person that does each job or what he deems the type of person. But anyways, yeah. So very weird. I feel bad for the family finding out that way as well. And then she also noted, and and we all knew this already, that Tammy had visited family right before she died and she didn't notice any problems with Tammy. Tammy was in good health from what everyone on the outside could see. Chad also had told Samantha that he was going to be staying with a friend, which, you know, is Lori, after Tammy had passed away. And if you say I'm staying with a friend, you really think like, oh, you're grieving, you're staying with a friend. No, he was staying with his brand new wife. And at that time, you know, maybe they weren't married quite yet, but still staying with your girlfriend. Amanda, what did Chad say in response to Sam asking if his new wife had any children? Goodness. So he said she has grown children and that we were going to be empty nesters. Well, that's a lie. Mm -hmm. And that and then he calls Samantha's husband and says, hey, I got married while I was in Kauai. And he's like, wait, what? Right. The whole family's like, what? Yeah. And then he says, oh, well, she, you know, understands me. She's going through kind of the same thing I am. Her spouse died of a heart attack one of them did. And you're like, well, technically, it's not a lie at this moment. But no, your brother shot your husband. But this is another reason why I love Samantha. She's like, I'm gonna look this girl up. She, you know, Googles around and she's like, Lori Vallow? This Lori Vallow that's tied to Chad in this podcast? What? Whose children are missing? Mm hmm. Again, I feel for her because oh my gosh, First, your sister dies. Then your brother-in-law, who still you have a relationship, right? You love this person. They've been in your family for so long, goes and gets married that fast. And then I'm sure she's seen all the news. Like she said, she's been following it. Lori bought her wedding ring before Tammy died. Gross. And also like in terms of like how close the two couples were, Samantha's husband, Jason, was like, I looked up to chat. Mm -hmm. Like that was he's like, he was my brother. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. Just being so wrong about someone, you know what I mean? Like that, it's a different kind of hurt because you're now mourning the loss of the person who you thought you had in your life. Exactly, she's going through a lot. Yeah. Okay, so since our last recording, there was some more information that came out surrounding the Vallow case. So as of right now, which is April 1st, around 2.30 p.m., we are adding some additional content to our Vallow section. So as of yesterday, which was March 31st, Justin Lum, a reporter for Fox 10, on his Facebook page, wrote that he had received some footage from Gilbert Police Department investigations into the sudden death of Alex Cox and that the videos were to follow. So throughout the day yesterday, pieces of body cam footage were posted. And what's interesting is that they're all heavily blurred. You can't really make out anybody in the footage. Our first question was, why is it blurred? And it turns out that generally it's some police department's policy that if they're going to publicly release body cam footage, that it's going to be blurred out. There certainly are other jurisdictions in Arizona where they do the same thing as well. We also saw on the ACLU's website, they talk about body cams and they talk about how we have to balance the right of public disclosure of government records with our right to privacy. And so blurring the cam footage is a good way of finding an equilibrium. Yeah, I will say I've watched them now twice they are a little difficult to hear at some points. And because the recording has that beep ever so often, some parts of it are very low. And then all of a sudden a beep will happen. So you turn it up and then the beep hurts. So there's some things that are fairly easy to understand. And then there's some parts where we're like, it could be this, it could be something else that they're saying, we're going to give you what we believe we heard. And if there is something that we're a little confused on what they said, we'll let you know. So we've kind of lumped them all together, and we're just going to go dive into the information. We've discussed the broad strokes of what happened to Alex in our Vallow episode and the incident surrounding it. However, the footage that was just released gives it a bit more color. We're able to understand a couple extra pieces of what happened that day. So there are multiple videos, and they're all kind of happening around the same time. So we've put it together in order that we believe it happened in. The first video starts with police beginning to question those on the scene. They asked Dilemma whether he was sick, if he had been experiencing shortness of breath. She mentions that he was very healthy. She says that he was having some issues when he would go up the stairs, for example, and he'd be out of breath. But overall, he was healthy, just that small issue, no drugs, no alcohol, but he had been feeling better. She also mentions that when she had gotten home and started the compressions, that he had been blue when she walked in. So understandably, she's pretty upset when they're talking to her. Police do mention that there was not a pulse, but they are currently doing chest compressions. So when Zulema's talking, she also mentions that Alex wasn't feeling well. So he called a friend for a blessing, which from prior information, we knew that was Chad. Zulema says, quote, he was talking to one of my friends on the phone because he wasn't feeling well. So my friend said that they would give him a blessing. So they were giving him a blessing over the phone. And then my friends texted me and said, you better get home now. Then the recording is muted for some time for whatever she says after this. But then when it comes back, she repeats it again, but says they told her he's not doing well. He's on the ground in the bathroom. One thing that stood out to me is that she's calling Lori and Chad friends where I would have probably said his sister, you know, his sister and her husband, possibly. I mean, their marriage was very new at this time. Do you remember that in the back of your head? But also, she says that he was feeling better. So if he was feeling better, why would they give him a blessing because he wasn't feeling well? It doesn't really make sense. No, it really doesn't. So another part that I was just like, what? Why would they text? If I knew someone's loved one was on the ground, you know, first off, I would have called them freaking out. I would have called 911 already. And like, something's wrong. Get over there. Texting is like... When you see it, you see it. Calling is urgent. I think maybe because she was at work, she might not be able to answer it right away. And this way, it actually may have been faster. But also, if you got three phone calls back to back to back, you know something's wrong. That makes sense. To, you know, to relay the information very quickly. Because imagine that long ass text of, get home now. He's on the bathroom. He's not doing well. Whatever else they said to her. It just seems, I don't know, just not as important. Agreed. So then Zulema, because she's away from the home, calls her son Joseph. He was in his room at the time to go check on Alex. He finds Alex on the floor moaning and struggling. He also mentions to police that there were feces and vomit. So on the floor and in Alex's mouth. And remember, when we first talked about this in Sinister Love, we kind of critiqued Joseph for not acting, which I feel very bad about now because you can hear it in his voice where he's like. They told me to do this and I couldn't. They told me to do this and I couldn't. Like about like moving him and stuff like that, and that he was having a panic attack, and that just like it was very sad to me. Well, yeah, anyone would be upset finding someone on the ground struggling. Yeah, I get that. You like to try to put yourself in that situation and go, "Would I care that there's feces and vomit everywhere?" Because when we first listened to the recording, it sounds like it's like, "Ew, no," right? That's kind of the interpretation that we perceive from it. But now, yeah, he was having a panic attack, but I still would like to think that if I was having a hardcore panic attack, I'd be like, but this person can die. It's hard. It's hard to not be in that situation, right? Well, and yeah, I mean, but even take out the panic attack part of it, we know that our instincts can be like freeze, right? Like some people, Mm -hmm. when bad things happen, they just freeze. That's true. And whether it's anxiety related or not, it's easy to be like, oh, I would do X, Y, Z. It seemed like he just like panic attack and froze and he did the best he could, which was like calling 911 and calling his mom. Yeah. Yeah, he, he definitely did. So he at one point had told Alex to try not to get up. But then when they're talking about it later, it sounds like he was just kind of moaning and maybe moving a little bit, but he wasn't so much conscious. Joseph did call Zulema and then he called 911 after she told him to. While on the phone with 911, like Lindsay mentioned, he was having a panic attack So they go a little bit more into detail. Sounds like they were asking him to remove the vomit to start compressions. And he does tell the officer, I couldn't do any of that. I'm sorry. The officer also asks at this point, who is he to you, your dad? And he responds, my mom's boyfriend. The one thing I don't like about this is he is at a grown age where he can interpret the difference between mom's boyfriend and mom's husband. For sure. But I mean, he's two weeks of not being boyfriend. I personally, this is my opinion, I don't think she told them, her kids. Oh, interesting. Maybe she didn't. I don't think she did. Because they weren't present, to my knowledge, at their wedding. Because remember, the security guard was their witness. You're right. You're right. That is strange. I wonder if she did tell them. That's just my guess. I have no idea. Yeah. Zulema gets home right before the paramedics arrive. And so as soon as she gets there, she starts doing chest compressions. The paramedics, it takes them 15 minutes from Joseph's call to get there. So once they arrive on scene, they begin chest compressions. When they take Alex to the hospital, Zalima goes with him. So we're going to move into the hospital footage, which it's over 35 minutes of very quiet mumbles. And they're moving around. You're like, I don't know who's saying what or where this is coming from. Like You can just kind of hear disembodied voices to a certain extent. But and this is and we'll, we're, we're moving a little bit forward in the video because during the video, they're giving him chest compressions and they're trying to revive him. But when he is eventually pronounced dead, she's sobbing at his bedside. And the person with like the police officer who's wearing the body cam footage is facing her. So he's just like w- looking in, watching her sob over her husband. And I'm not saying that it doesn't make sense for there to be a police presence, but I would imagine in that moment, the last thing you want is someone just staring at you. And I don't know if either he was like actually looking at her, but his body was facing her. And I was just like, what an intensely personal moment to have recorded in that way. But so at one point before he's pronounced dead, you can hear a woman's voice. I think it it sounds like Zulema, but I'm not 100 percent sure because we can't see who's speaking You can very clearly hear her say, I know you can hear me. Come back to me. I know you're there. Come back to me. And that was just very, very sad to hear. I I do think on this footage, it does sound like, you know, a grieving wife, right? But then another small part of me still goes, how legitimate was this relationship? Because even if they were let's say just good friends, because they had known each other for a bit, that same emotion probably would be present. I still don't really buy their full-on relationship. It is, and it is sad to just see anyone grieving over someone. Yeah, I'm not sure what their relationship was, but her grieving seemed genuine. And it... I do agree with you that, you know, you can grieve very thoroughly for a friend or for someone who you're not actually truly life partners within your soul or whatever you want to call it. But so while the police officer is there, someone asks him if he's going to need to speak to the medical examiner. And he says he doesn't. And then he says, I'm here for other reasons than this case kind of suggests that he's there for a different case, which is fascinating that he's sitting here watching then, right? Like that makes his presence a little more interesting because you're like, what are you watching for? My guess is to see if she calls Lori. Yeah. Uh Oh, I think so too. I also agree with you. A medical professional comes in to talk to his dilemma. And I'm not sure if it was a med- the medical examiner or maybe it was the doctor who like signed his death certificate. But they asked about his health. And she said that she had tried to get him to go to the hospital. But like Amita said, he said he was feeling better and that he had recently gone to Mexico. And so they say what he got. And it very much sounded like it was medical equipment and medicine. And I'm not sure if it was what I thought it was, which is why I'm not saying it. But it sounded like they said, like, medical equipment and a very particular medication. Then they kind of moved on. He was like, but he didn't get any procedures done, right? And she was like, he did not have any procedures done, which is interesting. Just, he was very, like, specific, like, did he get any procedures done? Did he get any procedures done? She was like, no. So, th- yeah. And I wonder if there's something that came to his mind. Like, was the this specific thing done? And maybe there was something that she doesn't know about. Just because, again, I'm going to say it. I've said it before. I still don't buy that his death was natural. I've seen the autopsy. I've seen everything. I get what it's saying. I get that that could have happened. I think something moved it further along. It's strange. And it's we all face loss in our life when we lose people we love. There is too many deaths surrounding Lori Vallow, DayVal. There's just too many. She either has the worst luck in the world or there's something strange. Also, while she's at the hospital, Zulema calls someone and she says, he's gone, he's gone. And then presumably this person is with her son, Joseph, and she asks how he's doing. And she's very stressed and worried about him because he had been upset when when she had left. And then someone comes in and prays with Zulema. So also during this time, Zulema's children are back at their residence. And Switching to a different piece of footage now. So we know that Zulema's daughter calls her while she's at the hospital. So presumably it's Zulema's daughter who calls her mother at this point. She asks Zulema to speak with the police officer. When Zulema gets on the phone, very nicely, she asks the police officers to wait outside of her residence because it's making her children anxious. But then she also asks why, they're, why they would need a search warrant. So I get if your kids are anxious asking them to step outside totally understand that because she's not there to see how they're acting and and how they're taking the news, right? Okay, that's fine. Again, putting myself in a weird situation. I don't think I'd care about the warrant at that moment, you know, especially if I had nothing to hide. I just feel like I I don't care what you guys are doing or why you're there, but like my kids are stressed. That Sent up red flags to be. Yeah. I mean, her husband just died and her children are upset. I find it fascinating that at that point she's like, well, why would you need a warrant? And so it's Sergeant Mark Wood who responds to her. And I think that he is the person wearing the camera, but he could just also be close by because it's kind of unclear, like with what you're seeing, if it's him or not. So Sergeant Wood from the Gilbert PDA explains that he doesn't want to make anything worse for anyone or make her children more anxious, but that because someone died in their home, the police need to stay there until there has been a determination by a judge about whether a search warrant would be issued. He also explained that he must monitor movement of those inside the home during this time, including their movement around the residence, but they're free to leave. So he's like, we have to basically secure this crime scene. If people are milling about, we're going to follow them around as they do it because we want to see what they're doing because this is a crime scene. And I, I thought this was an interesting response. Zulema basically says, but he didn't die at the house. He died at the hospital. Sergeant Wood clarified that the incident leading to his death occurred at home, though. Again, though, they said that they didn't have a pulse. They pronounced him at the hospital, understandably, because they needed to try a couple more things. But I'm pretty sure he died at home then, right? Yeah, it's an interesting point to argue, Right. So Zulema then talks about how she's going to reach out to her attorney. And Sergeant Wood says it's not necessary because, I mean, she could reach out to an attorney or not. The same thing is still going to happen. It's procedural what he's doing. So Sergeant Wood explained that they're trying to determine whether Alex died of natural causes because he can no longer speak for himself. Right. And I believe he says that after she hung up and he's talking to the children. Oh, interesting. I didn't know who he was talking to, but I loved that like that rhetoric, like we're trying to work on his behalf. Yeah. Which is a much different stance than we're seeing if you guys did something fishy. Yeah. It's hard to determine though. I I assumed he was speaking to the kids like, "Okay, this is why I'm still here." But again, it's really it's really blurry, so it's really hard. Yeah. And this next part I think is Fascinating. So you can hear it in two different body cam footage recordings, but there's a conversation between two different police officers where one is explaining to the other that Alex is being investigated by a detective in relation to another case. And then they also move on to the fact that there's multiple blowtorches in the residence. And that normally when they see that, it points to drug-related activities, which could be, you know, somebody who is using drugs, but also someone who's manufacturing drugs. Yeah. And remember, his autopsy did show no drugs. Interesting tidbit, though. Yes. But I mean... That they test for. That they test for. That's true. Again, I don't buy it. I feel like there's something missing in his autopsy. And it could even be something that isn't tested for right away, can't be tested for later. You know? Yeah. I I just, in my gut, I don't trust that he died of natural causes. They can tell me it all day. And it is probably just denial. But there's something missing. But here's the thing, though, when they originally start talking to Zulema, she's like, he's the healthiest person I know. He's very healthy, very, very healthy. And she talks about these bouts of shortness of breath as a new occurrence. This is not something he's always had. I am not a doctor. I cannot diagnose what was going on with him. But it's hard for me to think that like it could be this quick. And again, just too many deaths surrounding Laurie Valadabelle, like just too many. I understand that hard things can happen very quickly, but I don't think that he showed additional signs that normally would have been there for the amount of time that usually it happens in, you know? Exactly. Hopefully there's more coming. I believe they took some samples after the autopsy and kept them. So hopefully they're able to test for more things later. I don't know. That's just my theories. Yeah, I anticipate that we'll probably see more body cam footage of various events as the case unfolds. If there are any more that happened after this, we'll include them in our next True Crime Digest. Absolutely. I want to end Lori's segment on something positive, and that is that Samantha and her family have set up the Tammy Daybell Foundation. And they didn't really talk about it in the Dateline episode, but they said, like, go to our website to see. And then I actually went to the foundation's website. And basically, they are trying to get books out to kids in honor of Tammy. And I absolutely love that they did this. Yeah, and it'll help schools that can't afford books. And we'll include all the information so you could get there on our show notes. But it's the TammyDayBellFoundation.com. And you even can set up Amazon Smile to give a donation to them. Yeah, I love that. You're already gonna buy stuff off Amazon. Yep. And you don't even have to do anything extra. You just set up your smile account to the Tammy Daybell Foundation, and it'll help kids read. And that's like ultimately what Tammy wanted with her life is to help children. She was so loving. And again, they're turning like this horrible tragedy into a way of helping others. And it's beautiful. I love that. Yeah, that is wonderful. So just as a note, If you go to our website, truecreeps.com and you check out the ongoing case section, we have a case timeline as well as a key of the players involved in the case. We'll also include the link to Tammy Daybell's Foundation on there as well. So if you want to click from the web, you can do it there too. So the last big topic of today, we have like two other little things, is the cold case of K-Day. And I actually, I hadn't heard of this until recently when there's been a suspect who has been arrested. And this is a murder from 1979. So, the murder of Kay Day is the oldest unsolved case in Weld County, Colorado. Kay was last seen locking up her office at Ames Community College in 1979, the next morning when her her husband realized she didn't come home and a missing persons report. On November 27th of 1979, Kay's vehicle was found parked on the side of the road not far from her office. She was inside. She had been sexually assaulted, beaten, and then strangled with a belt from her overcoat. So sad. Yeah, it's disgusting. So, they also took DNA fingernail scrapings from her right hand, as well as the DNA on her coat sleeve, which I don't know if that was blood or other fluid. Right. And they did perform a rape kit, too. Yeah. So Brian Kasselam began working the cold case in spring of 2020. So just last year, it was like a relatively recent time that they opened this back up. Yeah. And I wonder if jurisdictions were opening up cold cases because people were not out doing so many killings. <laughs> it would make sense, right? So, like... They had some spare time. They're like, let's just dust off these old ones. We're trying to find a positive light of 2020 here. <laughs> I'm trying to find something, guys. Aside from the start of True Creeps. Of course, that goes without saying. Yeah, yeah. No, that was the talk of the year. The talk of the year. The talk of the town. Uh The talk of the town. if you watch Bridgerton. That's an old reference now because it's like two months ago. What is time? Anywho. So Kostamon began working with CBI agent Vaughn Woods to see whether the DNA evidence they collected from 1979 could be run through CODIS. It could. And last year on my birthday, which is August 26, the DNA casework came back with a match to James Dye. James Dye had been arrested for violent crimes and then also sexually violent crimes. And the way that she had been found matched his previous MO. And he had been arrested in both Kansas and Colorado. Now, Detective Callahan checked the file to see if Dye had ever been considered as a person of interest. And in September of 1988, Someone had called Crime Stoppers with a tip. So in the paperwork, in the suspect section, it said James Die. And then this is like what the tip included. It said, the person used to work on a farm east of Platteville. They were either the killer or they were very involved in the killing. Mm. They came home that night covered in blood. He got rid of the clothing. So he then, like after he changed, he sat down and watched the news with who would be his future ex-wife. And before it came on, like with a report, he was like, oh, a girl was killed near Ames College. Don't like that. No. So fast forward back to Detective Castellan's investigation. He interviewed Dy's family members, including his ex-wife and his sisters, and they all agreed he was capable of murder. The fact that they would all agree that. Yeah. You're like, how is this person walking around when everyone around them thinks that they could kill someone? Well, I mean, that being said, like, you could be like, this person's morally ambiguous, but I don't know if they've killed anyone. So James Dye was arrested on March 26th of this year, which again, as of this recording is yesterday. So, wow. This is like a developing case. Yeah. I don't know if we're going to find too much more out because DNA match crime scene that they already understand it fits the kind of the crimes he was doing but definitely an interesting one especially for it being so old yeah and it's awesome that they're taking cases from that long ago yeah and being able to be like that person did it like think about how many people have been arrested in the last couple of years from crimes in the 60s and 70s i love the idea that there's people out there who look like, i got away with it it's fine it's fine like because like what's dna and then the future comes and then just slaps them right across the face i love it Deservingly. Deservingly. Yeah, and part of me is like mad that they got to live their life for that long, you know? Yeah, they don't they don't deserve that. They absolutely don't deserve that. But I'm happy, yeah, that finally justice finds them. It's like, nope. Yeah, yeah, especially so long wondering like your loved one, like how they died. Yeah. That's very sad. So those are the cases we're updating for today. We thought it might be interesting to include some spooky kind of media that's coming up. It looks like Evan Peters was cast to play Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah. On like the Netflix show that Ryan Murphy is directing. Mm-hmm. which I'm interested to see if it's just American horror story with Jeffrey Dahmer either way I'll like it I'm excited for the new American horror story coming out too when does that come out I don't even know they announced the theme last week I want to say oh what is it what's the theme and then I have one more update but it's just, it's a personal update about a new member of our family So, Ryan Murphy on March 19th put up an Instagram post with a little video with a teaser. And it just says the title of American Horror Story 10 is Double Feature. And it just says, Two horrifying stories, one season, one by the sea, one by the sand. That sounds like the same. Oh, God. Underwater aliens? I'm hoping so. Blue holes? Just for you. A bitch with bangs? (laughs) A bitch with bangs. Yeah, they teased about it a while ago, something with people thought like shipwrecks or something along that line. You know what I could see him doing? Bermuda Triangle. He can only cover things we've talked about clearly, obviously. I mean. Oh, uh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I'll I'll message him real quick and just go, hey, if you haven't thought about it, this is what we recommend. Don't worry about all the filming you've been doing. Yeah, here's a list of things. <laughs> no. No get on our level. Okay, I said one more update. And that is that I have a Furby that has five eyes and a face of teeth that my husband got for me that I'll post pictures of. Her name is Tootharella. She's black and fluffy and I love her. She's fantastic. She's here recording with us right now. Yeah. I'm showing Amanda her in the camera. Beautiful. And speaking of Furbies, though, Lindsay. Oh, yes. Speaking of Furbies. One thing we can discuss real quick is we have this really, really amazing Furby sticker for those that participate in last week's episode's game. So our Sea Monsters episode has a game for the first 15 minutes. And if you want to participate in the game and host your amazing artwork, we would love to send you a special sticker. Just don't forget to tag us. Yes, tag us and we'll share it and we'll send you a beautiful sticker. Yeah, very excited. So also, if you have any cases that you'd like us to cover in our True Crime Digest, shoot us a message. Our socials are going to be on our outro as well as our email address. And thanks for listening. See you next week. Thanks for creeping with us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod, and on Twitter at True Creeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps.